Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to pick up with the fifth verse and then go back and review the the questions that this is uh, answering. But just to let you know, this is... uh, a dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord, and this becomes the Lord's answer to Habakkuk when he's asking, really, what's going on here? Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like, like sand. All at, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we we need that reminder that this is your word. For in this, it it seems there is little comfort. And yet, you saw fit to record this answer to Habakkuk and to your people then and to preserve it for us today. And so, you want us to hear you. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and minds to to comprehend what you're telling us. And then, Lord, will you apply it in our lives? And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Several days ago, uh, a girl that was in the youth group with me and with Connie, when we were in high school, uh, passed away. We were seniors when uh, she was a sophomore. It was a very close-knit group. And uh, she ended up marrying a, a PCA pastor. And for that reason, we saw each other off and on through the years. And only more recently uh, did we see them and catch up with them a little bit and find out 
about the illness that she had struggled with for some time. She had struggled with, with cancer, and she was doing better. And then it came roaring back. She had um, prayed and had many people praying for her. The, her husband, the PCA pastor, had an extensive email list. And up until literally a few days before she died... He said, we are believing that God will heal her. And it was only right at the end that he said, it doesn't appear that that will happen. So where's the disconnect with that? What's the deal? They were praying faithfully, and many were praying with them. But the answer for healing, and yes, we know, and he knows that, that she is now healed, ultimately. We get that. But that wasn't what they were praying for. They were praying that she would live longer. What if you prayed on the bigger picture of things, Lord, I am <clears throat> I'm tired of this violence that we see all around us. It's hard to see this, this sin and corruption, the injustice in this world. <clears throat> Will you please deal with it? What if God's response was, yes, I will deal with it, and it will end. <clears throat> Here's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to send ISIS to your country. And ISIS will take over your country and your government... And they will sweep through, and they will have their way, and they will capture you. But you won't have to look at the violence you're looking at from your own people any longer. You will be ruled by them. Now you're walking in Habakkuk's shoes. Now you're, you're hearing what he heard when he prayed one thing and God answered it, but he answered it in a way that he would never have wanted it to be answered. And so Habakkuk's like, uh, God, take away this violence. God says, here's how I'm going to do it. And he goes, wait, what? You're, how are you going to do it? How does, how does that answer our, our prayer and our concerns? So let's think back to last week, the questions 
that he had come up with. He said this uh, in verses 2 through 4, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. And that's what we dealt with last week. It's online. You can go back and, and listen to, to that. But I just want to remind you one, one thing about those questions and that is that we established that those questions were coming from a perspective of faith. Down in verse 13, he said this, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So, and we'll look at that section, his second questions uh, next week. But here's the point. Habakkuk's problem was, was not to say, um, God, I'm just upset that, that all this stuff is going on. You must not be righteous. You, you must be an unjust God or you must be, uh, not be sovereign, not be able to do anything about it. He wasn't coming from that perspective. In fact, it was just the opposite. He was saying, look, I know that you're too pure to look on this kind of a thing. And I'm looking around and seeing what's going on in the world, and that's my problem. I can't put those two together. So we establish that there is a way that we can ask God for understanding, and we can do it respectfully and not be coming from a perspective of unbelief, not be accusing him of being unjust, but just saying, God, I, I don't get it. What's, what's going on here? So this how long and why, those questions are asked, and then we see God's response in verses 5 through 11. Now, here's the thing. God could have had at least two reactions to Habakkuk with those questions. He could have uh, disputed Habakkuk's analysis of the circumstances, or he could have rebuked Habakkuk for asking. God doesn't dispute him. He... he he, God is showing that he knows that violence uh, prevails, there's strife, there's contention, there's oppression, there's plundering, there's perversion of justice that permeate God's people. That's the problem. And God shows he gets it. I understand. In fact, what he's showing is Look, Habakkuk, you think you're telling me something about what's going on. I understand it better than you do. And, and that's why I'm reacting this way. The other thing is, he doesn't rebuke Habakkuk. He doesn't say, 
Who are you, little man, to ask me these questions? Where's your faith? He doesn't rebuke him. He just answers. And so now Habakkuk can can no longer say, God doesn't see what's going on in the land. In fact, he has to say, yeah, you do. You do get it even better than I do. So let's look at the answer. The first thing basically is uh, he says, you, you might not have noticed, but I am actually working. <laughs> when he talks about him uh, standing by idly and so on. He says this in verse 5. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. So God says four things uh, here that should cause Habakkuk and those who hear basically to perk up and and be alert. He says, uh, look, see, wonder, and be astounded. But then he goes on and says this, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So he says, not only am I working, but if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. And then he's about to go on and tell him what he's doing. And I think Habakkuk probably said, you're right, I don't believe this. This is, this is not what I was asking you for. But he's about to tell him. So we have to ask the question, is that, is that addressed to Israel as a whole, uh, what's going to happen, or to the disobedient ones, or to a faithful remnant? Um, in the commentaries, there is a very te- technical linguistic argument uh, as to who this is addressed to. And I tell you, it's a very technical linguistic argument Not so you'll be impressed with me, because bottom line is, I don't really understand that technical linguistic argument. I don't get it. But I do think from what I've read that we can can see that uh, it is addressed uh, to God's people, to the covenant people. And here's the point. Not everybody around Habakkuk was guilty. Even Habakkuk probably wasn't guilty of the kind of violence and oppression and and things like that that he's complaining about. But all of them are going to have to face that sweeping judgment. So that's what's going on here. But here's what we need to know about this judgment that's coming that he, he describes. This should not just be seen as a a record of uh, this terrible bunch of people uh, and and what they did and how mean they were or anything like that. But instead, we need to understand God warned his people that this was coming. Back in Deuteronomy 28, uh, people were turning from the law, and he says this, Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar 
from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So way back in Deuteronomy, he says, look, this is coming. To Habakkuk, he says, it's here. And I am doing a work. So this should be seen not as these terrible people that that God said, oh yeah, well, you know, maybe I'll just use these people to bring judgment on my people. Instead, what we see, and we'll see this in a minute, is he actually caused them to be raised up to prominence. He used them, and then he disappeared them later when he was done with them. This is an act of God, and he's using these people for his judgment. Now, what people? Well, it's the Chaldeans, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And you may or may not have heard of the Chaldeans. More uh, usually, we use the term Babylonians. And that can be used interchangeably. So I may sometimes call them Chaldeans, sometimes Babylonians. It's, uh, they are from the Babylonian Empire. But here's what's fascinating about them. 20 years before this, they were virtually unknown except the people that were right next to them. They had a rapid rise to power. They took over great kingdoms. And then they had a rapid decline. And that's because... This was the work of God. One commentator puts it this way. This whole international escapade underscores the prominence of the divine hand in raising them up and also bringing them down. They became the world rulers over Assyria, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt when 20 years previously they hardly were known to exist. Okay, now stay with me. You're wondering, well, so where's all this going? What's, what's this going to have to do with us? Hang in there. There's application here. But let's look at the description that he gives of, of these people. At the, um, there are actually about 20 features of the Babylonians described, and we're going to go through them quickly. There's no point in us doing a big study on the Babylonians. I don't want you going and telling all your friends, hey, come to St. Andrews. You'll learn all about the Babylonians. It's just fascinating. But here it is, uh, and so we, we do need to look at it. He, he starts out by talking about them as that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So this is not describing a few individuals. He's saying this is the nature of that whole nation that whole group of people. It's one reason I used ISIS earlier. It's a, you know, in our day, it, it just reminds me of descriptions we, we hear of them. Um, back in 2 Samuel 17, it describes uh, a, a people, uh, and it, it says that they, were, uh, they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And that's what the Babylonians were like, like a, a bear who's... Cubs, some, I don't know how you would rob a bear of its cubs, but if you did, you just picture 
that bear just striking out against everything that is in its way and not being able to be stopped. And that's what we see with with the Babylonians, with the Chaldeans. That's that's the kind of power they had as they went through the land. Uh, They are, verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Dreaded, that word is, is, um, (laughs) it's, it's used elsewhere as the terror that's instilled when you see the bare teeth of a crocodile. Now, how many have ever, okay, you haven't seen that, except on TV, we've seen it with, you know, the gator hunters and, and, and all that. But this word is used for that, like if a, if a crocodile opens his mouth and you see its bare teeth, that feeling you have at that moment is what they were feeling and, and the kind of fear that these people put in to others. They're fearsome. That's used in Deuteronomy, a walking through a, a desert filled with, with snakes, scorpions, and drought. When I was a, a, a kid, we lived in El Paso, Texas for a few years. And uh, me and my friends, during the daytime, we used to go out and, and play in the desert. Um, and it was only like 110, 112 degrees out there. But it was a dry heat, you know. <laughs> But we would see uh, out in the desert um, all these snake paths. We had what they had, what uh, what they call sidewinders, and you would see, you know, the the path of the snake. We could see scorpions and things like that. And that was in the daytime. And of course, we always brought our own water. That was the daytime. I cannot imagine what a frightful place that was at night, when. The sand would cool down a little bit and those uh, serpents and others would come out. And, and that's that word fearsome is used for like living in the middle of that kind of an atmosphere. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. I, the evening wolves, you just think of, you know, that's, they're hungry. They got to eat. And that's uh, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, uh, swift to devour. So here's the point with this. This isn't like a hurricane that we know is coming days and days ahead and you prepare for and you, you, know, you, you put things over your windows and you get water in and all that. What he's saying is it's already too late. You can't prepare and you can't evacuate because they will run you down. That's how swift this army was coming. And then verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And the idea there is, you know, don't expect mercy from them. You're as valuable as pick up some sand They're going to have so many captives. They're not going to show mercy on any of you. And that's that's what's coming. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. You know, the idea of uh, 
um, when they would try to take over a fortress, if this were the wall here, they would pile up earth. We saw this over in Israel outside of Masada, which is up on a mountaintop, and the Romans put a bunch of earth, earth there so that they could just go up the ramp and into the, the fortress. And that's what they're saying here. Nothing stops them. Don't think that, that anybody, that any of your neighbors around here that you've counted on to fight, they're not even going to slow them down. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. These are bad people. They're prideful. This is Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 1 through 4. And there was going to be no stopping them. Why were they going to be unstoppable? Well, because this is God's will. That's the bottom line here. You might want to protect God from this. You might want to say, well, you know, there's got to be some other explanation. Why, why would he do that or permit that or anything like that? This is uh, God saying, Habakkuk, you want justice. You want sin to be punished by me. You don't want to see violence. You think I'm sitting idly by. And God answers, you will know what real violence looks like. You will see evil like you never imagined and you wouldn't believe it. Well, happy Sunday to us, right? <laughs> How does this apply? What, what does this mean to us? Why did he record this? Why did he do that? Why did he uh, cause the Babylonians to rise up, to conquer all those lands, to take his people into captivity, to, for them to see all of this? Why? Well, there's several things I want us to, to take today. One is that God is the God over history. We, we must never forget that. God didn't see the Babylonians' aggression and say, yeah, I think I could use them. I'll follow along behind and I'll just let them do their own thing. He raised them up and when he was ready, he got rid of them. And that history that he is the God of, it's not circular. It's not meandering. It's not wandering all about hoping to find a place to land. His history is going somewhere. And it is accomplishing his will for his kingdom. So that's the first thing we need to remember. Secondly, we need to understand that a righteous God can use evil and evil people to achieve his purposes. Now, we might not like to hear that. doesn't make him the author of evil, but he can use that. And so, 
If, you're, if there's something going on in your life, if you're, if you're like our friend that has passed away, I know she and her husband would say this, this cancer, it's, it's awful, it's horrible, it's evil. And maybe you're going through something like that. Don't assume that that, that is, that's from Satan or that it's just a natural thing or anything like that. Understand this. God is able even to use those things to accomplish His purpose. We're not always going to get it. In fact, often we won't. But if we know that that's the case, and of course, we mentioned this last week, we'll do it again in future weeks. The classic example is, is the cross itself. In Acts 4, verse 27, it says this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They were gathered together, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, and then here's what it says about those that were going against Jesus. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It wasn't, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't Pontius Pilate, it wasn't the Gentiles, it wasn't the, um, the Pharisees. God used puny people who thought they were in control and he used them even though they meant it for evil. He used them to accomplish the most purely beautiful good thing this world has ever seen and that's salvation. That's what we need to know. If God is controlling it, it is what is best. Thirdly, we need to know on evil, for evil, that the judgment is unavoidable. If God's people in this case were open to this judgment, why should we think we're exempt? Why should anyone think they're exempt? And so the only answer? Well, there's only one answer of who can spare us from this judgment. It is the one who took all of the judgment for all of his people for all time and took it upon himself on the cross, and that's Jesus Christ. We may not be spared from general judgments, from living in a, a fallen world, but those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation will be spared from the judgment that is for all eternity. And that's what this foreshadows. And finally, step back and look at the long view. The Babylonians laughed at the kings 
And they laughed at the rulers as they took them down. And they laughed at the fortresses that couldn't stop them as they overtook them. But the scripture tells us that the God of Jacob is our fortress. That Christ is the high king of heaven. And Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He wins. And if we belong to him, we win as well. Let's bow together. Lord, none of us ever want to go through difficult things, and yet we would ask that when that's the case, when that is your purpose, help us to know that your purposes are always right and they're always good, even, even if they, they feel like they hurt, because you have the big picture and you are the Father who always does what's best for your children. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.